Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon, and this is Fordham Conversations. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Phil Pizzo. He's a Fordham alum who is the founding chair of a new institute at Stanford University, where he's working to reinvent higher education. But let's start by talking about his work with palliative care. It's a holistic approach to helping patients through serious illness or end-of-life decisions. Good morning. Do- can I call you Phil or Dr. Pizzo? What do you prefer? Phil sounds great Phil to me. Fine. Thank you. So, Phil, why is it so important to have a conversation about end-of-life goals? Well, you know, it's a critically important area. All of us together and individually share one thing in common, and that is uh, we will eventually die. And it's important for us to think about how we would like to die and what that means in terms of the quality of both our life and our death. Um, Conversations about end-of-life planning, which follow, if you will, the life cycle, begin early, maybe when we're getting our driver's license, uh, when we get married, maybe when we start a job, uh, and not just when we have an illness or we're older in life, become very informative in being able to share with others, whether it's your family or your care provider, physician, social worker, or other, what you would like to see happen at the end of your life, what preferences you wish to have. You know, it turns out that when you ask Americans what they want at the end of their life, 80% of them say they want to die at home. They want to have an opportunity to have their family with them, receive supportive care uh, along with uh, medical care, um, and not to be in a hospital, and certainly not to be on life support when there is no hope left for life. Uh, Unfortunately, that's not what always happens. Why Uh, is that? Why doesn't that happen? It doesn't happen because the expressions of desires are not so fully clearly delineated. Um, There may not have been active good communication um, with the family or with the provider. And physicians may not be very good listeners. Um, They may decide or may convey um, to the family or loved one, we could do something more um, for your mother or your grandmother or your husband or your child. Uh, and, you know, at moments of, you know, clear tension, anxiety, despair, you know, people make decisions that are not always the wisest for them. And they wind up then getting things done to them that they would never have really wanted to take place. So is the idea to make these decisions prior to any kind of emotional response based simply on a bad situation. Yeah, it's, a- you want abs- to do it beforehand. Absolutely. You know, when we come up against these situations, um, our uh, thinking can get very clouded, you know, and people can convey things in ways that are not necessarily uh, the most accurate, you know. So let's take a case in point. Maybe, you know, you've been diagnosed with a serious illness. Let's call it cancer, just as an example. And maybe you begin your therapy and you're having a response, which would be great. And maybe you're even going to be successfully treated from it. But sometimes that's not going to be the case. And, you know, when you face, for example, a relapse of cancer, it's not uncommon for an oncologist, a cancer specialist to say to you something like, well, why don't we try this you know, because the first treatment didn't seem to work. And they may suggest to you, really because they want to continue to convey hope to you, um, that taking the next step, or maybe the one even beyond that, is the right thing to do. But they may not say accurately enough, you know, this treatment is really not 
going to make a difference. And you may spend a lot of times with a lot of toxicity uh, related to that treatment only to face the inevitability of death. And in retrospect, you may have wished um, someone to have said to you, you know, this is not really going to work. So why don't we really think about how to manage your care even better? And I would think maybe you might become overwhelmed at the various suggestions that might be out there. And you sort of just want somebody at some point to tell you what to do. But why do you think it is, Phil, that most people even avoid the topic altogether? Yeah. Well, you know, I want to say two things about that. First of all, you know, having conversations about death and dying is not the easiest thing for us to do. It's not always um, a dinner table discussion, even though that might be a good place for it to take place. You know, it's hard for us um, as humans to face the inevitability of our death. And so we tend to avoid it. All of us tend to do that. But deep down, we all have a kind of sense of what we would want. Um, And as I said to you, 80% of people or more um, want comfort care when they face the inevitability of death. Physicians, over 90% want that. And yet, that's not what's happening. And that actually is where this whole concept of palliative care you know, comes about. So what's palliative care? Palliative, right, define that for me, please. Yeah, well, palliative care is really, if you will, an adjunct to medical treatment, and it's also given by specialists, physicians, nurses, social workers, others who work in concert um, with their medical doctors, specialists, and primary care physicians to provide symptomatic supportive care through the journey, not just at the end of life. That's really the important thing, but at the time of diagnosis of a serious illness. So you might look at it as a parallel track um, that allows people to begin to grapple with what they're facing um, with the serious illness, how they can prepare for it, and most importantly, how they're actually receiving things that will keep them comfortable. One of the really hard realities is um, symptoms like pain management uh, can be really devastating for both the person and the family, the loved ones, and if not attended to by individuals who know more about how to do it successfully, uh, individuals can suffer unnecessarily. So palliative care is a way of providing comfort, um, support through the course of illness, through and to the end of life when that becomes inevitable. Palliative care can actually go on for years and years and years. And importantly, it doesn't displace active ongoing treatment. One of the things that many people fear is that they need to make kind of this um, binary or kind of Faustian Either bargain. or decision. Either or. I'm either going to get treatment or I'm not. Um, But palliative care is built, in fact, on the premise that you can continue to get treatments at the same time that you're also receiving quality of life uh, care as well. And in fact, studies have demonstrated that individuals who are getting ongoing therapy, let's say for lung cancer, at the same time that they're getting palliative care, actually live longer um, than those who did not. And the quality of that life is better. Phil, help create a picture in my head. So you're my doctor. I have just been diagnosed with some disease. How do we begin the conversation of you have this disease and here's the idea for palliative care? Where does the conversation sure. begin? Well, you know, Robin, one of the really important things is for physicians to be comfortable and able to actually have that conversation. And in fact, one of the things that is really sad um, today is that many doctors don't 
haven't been well trained to, um, and don't have the time um, to do, really deliver it. It takes time, uh, really, to engage in that kind of discussion. It's not, how are you, Robin? I want to give you this diagnosis today, and off you go. It is, Robin, I really need to um, share with you some really important information. Let's have an opportunity to have a conversation about what this means, what the implications of the decision are for you and your family, what choices you'd like to make, how you'd like to convey to me and we then to codify together what the best way of meeting your preferences and your needs are are about. Phil, is palliative care also include hospice or no? Palliative care and hospice are a part of a process, but they're different from each other. Palliative care um, is something, in a way, that every physician should have in his or her repertoire. Um, And it's not restricted to physicians. Importantly, it's a practice that is um, also performed by social workers, psychologists, clergy, um, others um, who are part of, if you will, the overall medical team. And it really allows you to become conversant uh, you know, as a physician or a nurse or a specialist in what the needs of the individual are through life and, in fact, all the way through the end of life. Hospice care uh, is somewhat different. It really is about end-of-life care, and it's about the time that uh, one often thinks about imminent death. You know, So we tend to think of hospice care, particularly for elderly persons where Medicare may be um, providing support for it, as the last six months of life. Right, And so hospices can be uh, coordinated, interdisciplinary uh, activities that bring together doctors, nurses, social workers, psychologists, other teams who can provide that care at home um, or provide that care in facilities. And it's really important um, because it allows people to die with a focus on comfort and dignity. Now, the big difference is hospice care, as currently constructed, means that you've given up. Um, active treatment. Uh, And that's different from palliative care, which means that you're still involved in active treatment at the same time that you're receiving supportive and symptomatic care. So, Phil, help me have the conversation. What are some ways that if I am someone who wants to bring this issue up to a family member who might be too shy or uncomfortable talking about the issue of, I have this terminal illness, uh, let's talk about palliative care. How do, what do you suggest are ways a family member could bring it up. Absolutely. Well, I think family members play a key role in discussions about uh, palliative care, end-of-life planning, or the quality of life, um, if you will. Uh, They're not always willing to do that, right? And I think, you know, you might, Robin, find that if you went to your mom or your family and said, gee, I'd like to talk with you about my end-of-life planning, they might say, Robin, I don't want to hear that. You know, that's a very common response. And I think the next aspect of that is, you know, to me, mom or dad or, you know, another loved one or even a friend or my doctor, this is really important for me to be able to share with you because I want you to understand what my own preferences are, what I'd like to see happen. If something takes place 
that I'm not thinking about today. Maybe I, I haven't had a, a disease diagnosed, and maybe I won't for a long time, but I want to give you some sense of what I'm thinking. That may change um, if I do encounter a serious problem, and we can discuss it again, but at least we'll have some context you know, for it. So I think conversations about how we want our preference to be expressed should become more normative, more part of the process, rather than that urgent, desperate rush to try and bring resolution to this at a time when everybody's emotions are frazzled um, because of the uncertainty of what's going to take place. That's a hard time to make a really important decision. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon discussing palliative care with Dr. Phil Pizal. It's a holistic approach to helping patients through serious illness or end-of-life decisions. And coming up, we switch gears as Dr. Pizal tells us about a new program that he heads at Stanford that helps people figure out their second act in life. Phil, can you help explain the DNR or do not resuscitate orders? Well, this uh, DNR or do not resuscitate is something that really applies oftentimes to people who are either in the hospital or who may become admitted to the hospital um, for a, a problem whereby if they have what is known as a cardiac arrest or an event um, that requires life-saving uh, approaches um, uh, that they declare in advance that they do not want that happen. What that often means is cardiac massage, um, resuscitation, or intubation, putting a tube into the airway. Um, these are pretty uh, important events when they take place. There are times when resuscitation is absolutely important. Someone has you know, an event that's sudden, unanticipated, and life-saving procedures can be just that. They could be life-saving. But there are times when life-saving procedures are not going to change the inevitability, um, but they're going to, to be blunt, inflict discomfort, pain, suffering on the person, as well as the family. So I think making it clear what one wants, really all part of this preference issue that we've been discussing this morning, Robin, is really part of making it you know so important to all of those around you, what you want to see happen um, to you. Now, doctors should also talk um, with patients about their requests about do not resuscitate orders. And sometimes, to be honest with you, this gets confused in, in hospital settings where someone may have come in and had a DNR, you know, expectation, and some person may come up and say, gee, you know, maybe you should rethink that. Maybe you'll try this and you'll be okay. I, I think that's when unclarity uh, of what one wishes um, becomes confused by the sudden inevitability. I think if you know what you want, you understand the issues, you can be much clearer and uh, solid in resolving your concerns. Well, as a doctor, Phil, how do you, ex how do you, what suggestion do you have for, for understanding this? Because if someone's at the hospital, and like you said, they can get differing yeah. opinions. How, how do you cut through all that? Well, I think that this is the importance of building toward that rather than making it a sudden event, right? So if I'm your physician, we have to have had these discussions along the way. 
so that you know and I know what our expectations are. And of course, this is one of the big problems in medicine today. It's so fractured. Many people don't have a clue as to who their doctor is. They may be part of a large group, seeing different people at different times. It makes it very difficult, you know. So maybe they have a problem in the middle of the night and they call 911, you know, and they go to the emergency department where you're kind of on an autopilot moving through the process with no one stopping to say, ah, Robin, uh, I understand you had a clear plan and you don't want these things done. You may find yourself on the process of getting many things done that, uh, in fact, you wished would not have been. And I think this is one of the things that we really need to reconsider in the delivery of American medicine. We need to have much more consistency, much more availability, much more um, the opportunity for people to know who to call, when to call, and what the response uh, is going to be. So, Phil, recently you moved into, is it fair to call it your second act? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) You stepped away as a dean of Stanford's medical school after 12 years and moved into a position as the founding chair of a new institute at Stanford. Um, So tell me about the Stanford Distinguished Career Institute. Sure. Well, thank you for asking uh, that question. Let me give you a little bit of background um, for it. So uh, as you know, I'm a Fordham alum, um, had the opportunity to uh, do my undergraduate work here where there was a very heavy emphasis on philosophy and theology in addition to sort of biological sciences. And I was very much influenced by that. Um, When I went to medical school, um, I really wasn't quite sure where my life was going to go. I thought being a doctor was really the next stage of what I hoped um, to do. Um, But it became influenced um, in a number of uh, interesting and even ironic ways when I left medical school to begin my residency uh, in pediatrics at the Children's Hospital in Boston. Um, And that actually is where the concept of what we now call the Distinguished Careers Institute uh, began. So what happened? You had it very early then. I did. And Mm -hmm. what happened was, you know, there I was, you know, a young intern, you know, bright-eyed, looking at people around me with high expectation. And because of the nature of the institution I was training in, there were some exceptional luminary physicians who had really pave the way for new innovations and discoveries. And two of them stood out in my mind for reasons different um, than the discoveries that they had made. And it was that, you know, they had, if you will, kind of passed their prime. They didn't think about what their next act was going to be. They got into their kind of mid-70s, which at that time was much older than it is today. Um, And, you know, someone had to tap them on their shoulders and say, you know, you need to move aside. And I said to myself as a very young person beginning his career, don't let that happen. Have kind of an alternative career in plan. So when you get to the point where you've kind of completed your work in medicine and science, you have something else to look forward to. And so for the last 40-some-odd years, uh, I've been preparing for that. I was preparing to go back to graduate school to do a Ph.D. in history. Um, So I've been reading history along the way, largely when I do my long-distance running, listening to audible.com and, uh, you know, fusing together um, these two activities. And that kind of took me up until just a couple of years before I proactively decided after 12 years to step down from being dean. And I realized that, you know, the world has really changed since I made my own formulation. Forty years later, um, we're in the midst of a new revolution, which is we're facing the reality that uh, the U.S., 
And then the world is going through the largest demographic change in history. Um, and it has everything to do with the composition of our citizenship. You know, today, 10,000 people are crossing the age of 65. 10,000 will do it tomorrow. Um, by uh, the end of 2030, 20% of the U.S. population is going to be 65 or older. And I think what one often finds and thinks about as you look at this changing um, demography is what are people going to do based upon the old societal norms? The societal norms, of course, are that when you get to my age, you retire and you do something else. But the real reality is that that may not be the best thing or the thing you wish to do. You may have lots of ideas, lots of energy, lots of opportunities, and yet you may not be clear. Because also that idea was when people usually got one job, worked that, you know, straight out of high school, college, worked that one job until it was time to retire, and then they were happy to go home and relax. Absolutely, and many many people might want to retire, and I'm not making a negative judgment about that, but I am saying that maybe there ought to be some alternatives, so that maybe when you... You know, let's say you're, you know, in your 20s or 30s, you may want to know that, you know, you've completed your early education, you started on that first pathway. Maybe when you get to your 50s, which is what I'm thinking about as midlife these days, um, that you want to kind of go back to school and rethink um, the directions that you'd like to um, to take. And when you get to your 40s and 50s, maybe you're getting a little burnt out with the job that you've been in, which often happens, and yet you don't know what to do, right? So the goal of the Distinguished Careers Institute is to prototype uh, a new approach um, to midlife education. And basically, it fuses together three governing principles for life transition. It says, first of all, when you are going through a transition in your 50s or 60s and beyond, and that's the age group that we're largely focusing on, you know, you need a sense of continued direction. Maybe you were a lawyer or a banker or, you know, working in a large or small company, or maybe you were a professional of one kind or another, um, and now you'd like to try something else. How do you get there? So a sense of purpose and renewal is a critical facet of who we are. And what we've done is to say, look, let's try this experiment where we bring people to Stanford, a small number of them, 25 per year, um, highly selected, um, and they spend a year um, choosing a new purpose. They have a purpose pathway. It can be very broad, can go from arts and humanities to entrepreneurship to environment and others. They take courses throughout the university um, and form a new partnership of intergenerational connections, which will come back to in a moment, between undergraduate and graduate students um, and themselves. And then Can they, I ask, Bill, so does it take the career that you had, let's say journalist, and you're in your 50s and now you want this you know, second act in life, does it take those skills and move you and suggest other directions? Or is it like, let's start from scratch? Yeah, it's a combination. It's really more about, um, from our perspective, more about personal transformation. Let's think about where you've been and let's think about where you might go. And the second really critical part of that is to form a new community. You know, you think about the reality that we have in our workplace. You have colleagues, friends, and others. Well, when you leave your workplace or you're getting ready to do it, those, you know, disappear. And that breeds oftentimes loneliness and a little bit of reactivity because what do you do to kind of rekindle that? So by bringing people together um, from all walks of life and creating a set of connections between them, a new community forms. So 
purpose, community, and then the third arm is recalibration of wellness and health. Because if you think about it, um, if you put together kind of continued sense of purpose with a continued community and network, and you're doing as much as you can to uh, provide for endurance and resilience, you potentially can attenuate the onset of the chronic declines that take place during life. That's the goal. Um, and maybe as this demography changes, begin um, to reduce the need for medical and social services. So what we're really hoping is to try and have other colleges and universities and community colleges across the country begin to think about a new role a role not just for people starting their first career, but for those starting second or third ones, particularly in this 50 to 60 age group, where they still have 10, 20, 30 years of time where they could make contributions. Not necessarily a new job. You know, it may be something entirely different, maybe even unimagined at this point in time. But I think that's uh, the goal really to shape the future for individuals and at the same time um, to shape the new future for universities as continued learning environments. Do you see this expanding to more than just this core group of 20, 30 people? Absolutely. Well, what I see is not scaling it up at Stanford, but rather uh, trying to encourage uh, other colleges and universities to do it. I'd love to see Fordham uh, become engaged in this kind of activity as well. So, Phil, you're a Fordham alum, um, born here in New York City. You said you were sort of a child of the 60s. And I know at one point you worked with um, infectious diseases at a time when the HIV AIDS epidemic was just beginning. Can you tell me about that? What was that like? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I wound up training um, in both uh, pediatrics and then the area of hematology, oncology, the care of children with cancer, and infectious diseases. And so I always had this connection uh, between oncology and infectious disease or serious illness and infectious disease. And I was, at that time, busily at work at the National Institutes of Health um, in Bethesda, Maryland, doing research, both basic and clinical science work, when in the early 1980s, the very first cases of HIV disease were described initially in adults. And because of my infectious disease background, I was involved in seeing some of these individuals who had catastrophic complications, of course, well before the time that we had treatments available for them. Um, And was therefore first in seeing some of the children, initially those uh, who were born because of infected blood products or because of hemophilia, and then, of course, subsequently by the early to mid-1980s because of transmission from mother to child. And this was a tragic um, disorder. And I really felt uh, very much uh, being in Bethesda where research uh, happened and where we were developing some of the initial drugs to treat HIV disease, that it was imperative um, to bring them to the care of children. So that was something that I um, championed, pushed very hard to accomplish. And, you know, we were able to, thankfully, witness um, the ability to really reverse the course of the disease in children. And so now in the U.S., um, we don't see very much pediatric AIDS. Sadly, we still do in the world, but we did make a lot of progress, which were, is being exported to the rest of the world as well. Can you help me understand what it was like pre-HIV and AIDS, especially from a doctor's point of view, here is this disease. You don't know what it is. You don't know necessarily what it's called. We're talking about in the very, very, very early stages. What was the medical community looking at, looking for? 
Absolutely. Well, you know, at the early stages uh, of this disease, there was a lot of fear, a lot of blame, um, a lot of uh, very frightened individuals who uh, did not want to be part of it. Remember, uh, the first cases, of course, were in gay men. Um, there was a lot of fear, a lot of homophobia and other uh, views about gay people. And it was made worse by the fact that they were getting sick and dying. And there was a big fear about what that meant in terms of spread of disease. And children, um, this was a big deal as well. There was a lot of discrimination. Kids were not allowed in school. They were not uh, allowed to be near, you know, their classmates. Um, and they were, interestingly, not even candidates for treatment. Um, drug companies, the Food and Drug Administration at that time, um, did not view children um, as a group that ought to benefit or receive some of the early antiretroviral therapies. Why? Because um, they viewed it as experimental, and they viewed uh, it as not a big population and not someone who they should really be concerned about while the fight was going on for adults. I, of course, felt very differently. Um, I must say that, you know, although ultimately my colleagues in Bethesda surrounded this problem in a beneficial way, when I first introduced um, the concept that we were going to begin carrying on treatment for children with HIV disease, it was not a popular move because my own colleagues, nurses, physicians, were fearful themselves. This was a common human concern, right? But I think we overcame that. Um, and as people recognize that these are children, children suffering from this disease, and we could do something about it. And when we tried to do something about it, it actually made a difference. That transformed, of course, the view of everyone uh, about this, including, um, thankfully, uh, drug companies and the Food and Drug Administration that ultimately approved therapies for children with HIV. Phil, how much of a pushback did you get? Uh, it was very significant, and one really had to stand one's ground. Uh, but to me, um, standing one's ground, maybe that uh, harkens back to being a product of the 1960s. You know, once you start on a mission, uh, you really have to be willing to take the heat to make a difference. And ultimately, for me, everything I've done has always been uh, because of the people that I've been responsible and caring for. It's for them that one takes the chance. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Phil Pizow. To find out more about the Stanford Distinguished Careers Institute, visit their website at dci.stanford.edu. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.